parasha. We're learning these shiurim, of course, for the parasha of the Machaya Sarah Matzimcha, and not a fan of Rabbi Tochshar for the Amo Yisrael. I mean, the parasha of the week is. I want to make a, a note that we are on a different parasha than Eris Yisrael. This is a uh, an event that happens from time to time in Israel. They are in next week's parasha already. They're in parashat Emor. So we are lagging. We are one parasha behind. Uh, I want to tell you how that happened. And how is it possible that we have two different Jewish communities and we're reading different parashiyot? It's very simple. Uh, in Israel, the last day of Pesach was on a Friday. And as you know that in Israel, they only celebrate one day. So therefore, Shabbat, right after Pesach, they started reading Parashat Shavuah again. As you know, we have two days of Pesach. We had Friday, Shabbat. So on Shabbat, we did not read the Parashat Shavuah. We didn't pick up the Parashat Shavuah till this Shabbat. So as a result, they are one week ahead of us. Uh, that's why it happens a lot of times that uh, Bar Mitzvah boys will go now to Israel this time of year, and they'll prepare their bar mitzvah perasha according to what we're reading in America. And there's <coughs> not real that they read that perasha already, and now they're stuck, and they uh, they basically studied the wrong perasha. So again, we will eventually catch up. Uh, you know, by the summer, we end up catching up that we end up reading uh, you know the same perashiyot. But as of now, there is going to be a uh, a gap between us and Eretz Yisrael. So again, by American standards, again, outside of Israel, the Parashat Kedoshim. If you're on the Israeli program, you're studying Parashat Emor. Since, as far as I know, we're in America, so we're going to do Kedoshim. By the Ber Adonai in Moshe Lemor, the Ber in Kol Adat Ben Amarta Alehem Kedoshim Tehiyu. So this parasha is unique because Moshe Rabbeinu was speaking to all of the Jewish people. Rashi says, This parasha was said uh, into the entire congregation. Parashat Kedushim is unique in that there are many, many mitzvot in this parasha. Um, if you want to know exactly how many mitzvot there are, the Rambam lists them. They're more than most parashiyot. 57? Yeah, close to that. Close to that. If it's not 57, it's definitely close to that. Wow. So therefore, since many, uh, many of the mitzvot were given in parashat kedushim, so therefore the Torah tells us it was given in uh, to the entire congregation. You know, they were all... Nice for the this again then tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I can hear it. And the uh, Torah then says, Kiddushim to you. Now, this is a big subject. Probably deserves a class on its own. The commandment is Kiddushim to you, which literally means be holy. What does that mean? So that she says, the word kiddushim can mean 
abstain. Kedushim, abstention. Abstention from what? Evu pedushin min arayot. Refrain yourself from the sins of immorality, which is actually what we actually learned. If you remember on Thursday night, that was the whole parasha talking about the forbidden relations. And now the pasuk is telling us in this week's parasha, abstain from arayot. Shekol makom she'atam erba. Wherever you see offense that's made against immorality, that's where you'll find Kiddushah. Just people want to know what makes Kiddushah, what makes holiness. So when uh, there's modesty and there's an abstention from uh, promiscuous behavior and there's a, uh, uh, you know, separation between the, uh, the genders and everybody is acting uh, in, a, in a modest and proper way, so therefore, they're abstaining from uh, promiscuity. That's where Kiddushah uh, comes from. So that she says in Kiddushim to you, abstain. Abstain from what? From the subjects that we mentioned at the end of last week's Benasha. And now the Torah comes and says, Ish imo ve'aviv tira'u. A person has to revere his parents, his mother and his father, and keep my Shabbat, now here, we have two things in this, um, in this Pasuk. Number one, it's telling us that everyone has to fear and have reverence to their parents. That's the simple explanation. So again, when the Pasuk says ish, it means every person, his mother and father, they should fear. However, that she comes along and says that when it says ish, it means a man. A man has to revere his parents. Oh, isha minayin. How do you know a lady does? Because uh, it says at the end of the pasuk, you shall fear is plural. So therefore, we must be talking about not only a man must respect his parents and fear his parents, but tira'u is plural, so ladies as well. So why did it say ish then? If tira'u is plural, so plural is including men and women. Why does the person have to say ish? She'a'ish sipek bi'yado la'asot. Aval aharim Amazing, Men are always obligated in respect and fear of parents, but ladies, not always. It's not always in the ability of a lady to respect the parents. Why is that so? Because, exactly, she's bound to her husband, and therefore her first loyalty goes to her husband. This is a subject of a lot of Shalom Bayit. Sometimes the husband wants the lady to go somewhere. Says, no, I gotta go to my parents. The Torah is telling you over here, that her loyalty now, when she gets married, is to her husband. And therefore, it's not her responsibility. She's exempt from the mitzvah if there's a conflict between parent and husband. Of course, if the husband's a good guy, you know, he'll acquiesce. But, you know, certain times when the husband wants a certain thing to go somewhere or to do something, and there's a conflict. So the pasuk is saying, ish, a man is always obligated. That's why the, that's why the lady is not mentioned. She's only mentioned... Uh, in the plurality of it, but you're not mentioned in the explicit of it, because a man 
will always have the obligation on him. A lady, since she has the husband's, uh, you know, will over her, so therefore it's not always in her ability to uh, acquiesce to the parent's will. Now, now, why does it put the mother before the father? When it comes to respect, it says, So sometimes it puts the father before the mother, and sometimes it puts the mother before the father, so that she says that we know, as a general rule, the child will fear the father more than the mother. That's just a general and don't tell me that in your house it's different. I'm just giving you a general rule. I know there's exceptions to the rule. And some will say that your, parents, your children don't fear either of you. But I'm talking about in the normal case, that, as she says, that a child fears the father. You're scared of your father. So therefore the Torah has to come along and put the mother first so you'll fear her as well. And the Torah has to compensate where the lack is going to be. So since it's natural to fear the father, the Torah says, Ish, it has to put the, the mother first. Whereas when it comes to respect, it's natural that the child would respect the mother first because the mother does all the things for the child. The mother feeds the child, buys clothes for the child. So the respect usually comes to the mother more easily than to the father. That's what it has to compensate. It's like, don't forget to honor your father. So wherever the deficiency is, that one comes First, now, why does the Torah mention Shemirat Shabbat in the same pasuk as honoring parents? What does one thing have to do with the other? Why honor your parents or revere your parents and keep the Shabbat? It's one thing I do with the other. It's a big question. So that she says that although it's a big hadush, although you have to honor your parents, you have to listen to your parents. But if the parent tells you to mehalel Shabbat, you do not listen. Because God says, I am God, I created both of you. And you're all obligated to respect me. I'm the parents of all of you. And therefore, the parent can only ask a child to do things that are within the confines of the Torah. But if a parent comes along and tells the child to desecrate the Torah, the Torah says you don't have to listen. That doesn't mean you can be disrespectful. You have to, you know... Uh, not listen respectfully. Uh, you can't tell your father, jump in the light. You have to respectfully disobey and not uh, acquiesce. So therefore, if a father comes along and says, you got to go to the store on Shabbat and open up, you know, we, we need to make a living. You're allowed to tell the father, I will not listen. Or your father says, you got to go out to eat in this non-kosher restaurant. You got to come with us, you got to order, and you have to eat and so on and so forth. The father has no, or the mother has no right to... Uh, uh, obey or, or to, to command the child to disobey the Torah law. So that's what the Pasuk is saying. Although you're obligated to fear your parents, you must keep Shabbat. Because that doesn't belong to them. Your parents are also obligated to keep the law and they don't have a right to uh, tell you otherwise. So that is the connection. The end of the Pasuk is I am God. That you, your father and your mother, you're all obligated to uh, respect me, I am God, and therefore uh, do not listen to them if they tell you to nullify a Torah precept. Now, let's discuss some practical examples. Give me an example of fearing your parent. What would you do to show fear? So that she gives an example. 
לא יושב במקומו. You don't sit in your parents' chair. You know, parents have a chair uh, where they sit at the table. Uh, that is their chair. And therefore, out of reverence, you don't sit. Your father has an office, let's say, in the house. You don't sit. He has a chair that he sits at the table or, you know, has a special designated spot. The mother as well, that is fear. You don't speak uh, when he's there unless you're called upon. Uh, you don't uh, pipe in and, uh, you know, say your, uh, say your opinion, which means, um, uh, let's say, uh, the, the, the friends of the father are talking and, uh, you know, it's your father's turn to say something and you interrupt, ah, I'll tell you what my father means. No, let your father talk. It's not respectful uh, that the, the child will speak in, instead of his uh, father. And do not contradict your parents. It's something that, you know, you're not allowed to tell your parent you're wrong. You know, your parents said, oh, it's a beautiful day. Ah, what do you mean beautiful day? It's pouring rain outside. What are you talking about? No, you, don't, you, don't, you, don't, you don't contradict them. Yeah, it's not respectful to tell your parents that they're, uh, that they're wrong. Okay, go teach that to the kids today. There is a kibud, and what's, what's considered respect? So that she says to feed the parents, get them food, give them to drink. When they get older, to clothe them. You know, sometimes the parents, as they get older, they regress. So the children now have to you know, help them. So part of respecting parents is to help them get dressed, put on their shoes, bring them in, take them out. Uh, take them to the doctor, take them for their, uh, you know, uh, needs and stuff like that. So that is the realm of uh, respect. Uh, so that's uh, the first uh, law that we read. The last law that we read tonight is Pasuk Dalit, Al Tifnu El Ha'elilim, which means we're not allowed to uh, worship Abodazara. Elilim is like the um, uh, idols. We're not allowed to worship them. And the word el, that she says, which means do not turn to the elilim, do not turn to the idols, but the word el can be read al. Al means nothing, because the elilim, the idols are actually nothing. They're worthless. That's why they're called elilim. Elilim comes to Lashon alilim, meaning they're, they're al, they're zeros. They have no, they have no value. Uh, uh, now, even if you're just turning to them to, you know, look at them and to study it, the Torah warns you eventually come to worship them. It starts with al-tifnu, and then all of a sudden from the turning and the paying it attention, before you know it, it becomes, becomes your God. So that's why we don't uh, even come close to Abu Dazara because, you know, even though you have an innocent intention, but all of a sudden the attraction comes and just a, uh, you know, a, a, a casual study of it turns into a, a worship. That's why we don't study comparative religion. You know, somebody says, I just want to study about the other religions. I, I don't want to worship it. I just want to learn Christianity. I want to learn what the Muslims are doing. I want to learn about Buddhism and Zen. I want to read the books. I don't believe it. God forbid, I trust God but I just want to read the books. What ends up happening when you read the books? You say, well, you know, something just makes sense. And before you know it, you're in Tibet, in the mountains, with the, uh, with the monks, with your legs crossed, 
and meditating, and before you know it, you're uh, you're with the Dalai Lama. So therefore, the Torah says, don't turn to it, because if you're going to turn to it, we're concerned that you might uh, end up falling for it and believing it. There's a lot of tum'ah in this, and therefore it attracts. That's why the children have to be so careful in school. They teach them Greek mythology, and they teach them all this, you know, stuff that there's no business teaching them. Abu Dazarah. Why teach it to them? Why do they have to know it? What, what, what does it make them better that they know about the Zeus and all the other uh, gods that are out there? God forbid, zeros. Uh, it can only pique their curiosity. And all you need is one kid to come along and say, oh, yeah, you know what? I'm going to go, uh, you know, uh, uh, search it and, uh, and uh, analyze. And then they're in trouble. There's one story told of a, a boy in one of the schools and he went to his rabbi. His rabbi was a liberal guy. And uh, he asked his rabbi, can he study comparative religion? And he wants to study about Christianity. So the rabbi was very liberal, told him, you know, what are you worried about? He says, I don't know, worried maybe it's going to be attracted to me. There's a risk. So he tells him, do you fly a plane? Do you go on an airplane? He says, yeah, he says, oh, but there's a risk. So you take risks. So basically what he was telling the, uh, the student, it's okay to take the risk. You fly an airplane, so you take the risk also. Finish, that's what you do. It's normal. So the kid went and studied comparative religion, and he ended up becoming a priest. And he came back to his rabbi wearing the collar of a priest, and he turned to the rabbi and he said, I'm sorry to tell you, rabbi, the plane crashed. And therefore, you see how uh, dangerous it is when you go just to research it, even without intention to study it, or to worship it, so that's warn you. Al tifnu ela elilim, because ultimately Elohim asecha lo tasulachem. It's going to turn into a Elohim asecha. It's going to turn into a worship of God, and the pasuk concludes and says lo tasulachem, lo tasulacherim, velo acherim lachem, which means you're not allowed to not only make an avodazara for yourself, but obviously it's isur to fashion an avodazara for others, which means so you cannot worship an Abu Dazarah that you made for yourself or an Abu Dazarah that you made for other people. Okay, we'll, we'll stop over here. This is a uh, packed parasha, as I said, we'll pick up tomorrow night on Pasuke. This is for the Fuash Lema Chaya Sarah. That's in Thank you, Rabbi. Amen. Good night. Thank you. That's the name of the month, and it stands for the Aleph is Ani, the Yud Yud is Hashem's name, and the Resh is Rof Echa, your doctor. Ani, therefore, Iyar is a month of cure and a month of healing. We pray for that Hashem, all those that we're praying for, will have it for us. Thank you. Amen. And uh, I cannot deny the fact we'll learn the Nishmat of uh, Rabbi Wallerstein as well. Uh, we are uh, in Vayikra. We learned last night a uh, couple of Pesukim, and now we are up to Pasuk here. So it's chapter 19, Pasuk 5. So now we're talking about um, a person that's going to bring a korban. Okay, a sacrifice. And the sacrifice 
איזה קורבן של עמים. And we know that a person uh, who brings a korban is able to eat it in many cases. Depends what type of korban it is, but many of the korbanot, the owners themselves, are able to eat it. Shilamim is one of them. The only thing is that there's a certain duration that you have to eat the korban within that specific time. It's not like you put it in your freezer and uh, you know, take it out whenever you want. You have to eat it. within a certain time frame, and after that time frame, you're not allowed to eat it, and you just have to, you know, burn it and uh, discard it. So the Pasuk is saying, and if you want to bring a korban, which you have every right to do it, uh, ultimately, the reason why you bring a, a korban is in order to give God uh, pleasure. It seems that God has a hana'ah when you bring a sacrifice, a pleasure when you bring it. And therefore, you have to bring it uh, only for the sake, you know, for Hashem and no other uh, ulterior, ulterior motives. Uh, it's referring to that when you slaughter the korban, you're saying, I'm slaughtering it for Hashem. When you catch the blood, the Hashem. Uh, when you put it on the mizbeah, the Hashem. So throughout the process, you have to keep in mind that you're doing it for God. On the day that you slaughter it, so you're able to, to eat the korban, and the following day as well. So let's give the example. Let's say you slaughter the korban on Monday. So you get to eat the meat the entire of Monday, the entire of Monday night, as well as Tuesday, which is the following day. But once you get to the third day, which would be Tuesday night, because now you're getting into Wednesday, so then already the Torah says the uh, meat is called notar. Now, even if it's fresh, we're not talking about it's spoiled, it's fresh meat, and, and some of you will say, oh, well, it's not fair, you're wasting meat. Well, you should have ate it uh, earlier. So the Pasuk says, Ba'esh tisaref. Now, Be'im he'achol, If the person comes along and will eat it after its time, then as she says, actually this pasuk is not only referring to a person who eats it past its time, but if a person eats it past outside of its place, that korbanot like this can only be eaten in Jerusalem, within the city. So, So it's not like you can take this meat and go to uh, you know, Tel Aviv or go uh, to Elat, wherever you're living. The korban must be eaten in Jerusalem. So if you eat it outside of its place as well, uh, there is a, uh, there's a penalty uh, as well. Now, not only that, but when the Kohen brings the sacrifice, if he thinks in his mind that this meat will be eaten outside of Jerusalem, or he thinks in his mind that I'm slaughtering it with the intention that the meat should be eaten past the third day, that renders the sacrifice um, illegitimate. So the Kohen has to be very careful what he's thinking, that he doesn't think wrong thoughts. Those negative thoughts that the Kohen has is referred to as pigul. Pigul, which means it makes the Qurban 
discuss. There's so many thoughts going through my mind as a lawyer for the pro-life movement, as a constitutional lawyer, and also somebody involved in politics. This was a deeply political. Okay. Sounds like CNN, but I'll continue. So it says over here. That's the cells at the bottom of the. Uh, yeah, right. Ends, uh, All right, focus up. Ve'ochelav and the one that eats the sacrifice uh, past its time, he gets the punishment. Now, hold on to your seats. You know, you wouldn't have thought that, you know, okay, so you ate it past its time. He didn't return the library book uh, in time. It's late. You would think that, okay, so they give him a little, uh, you know, smack on the wrist. No, the punishment is karet, which is a very serious uh, crime for a type of sin that you might not think is so, so significant. Um, so the Pasuk says, <laughs> The punishment is karet, and we learned this week actually in the Dafa Yomi that karet means, God forbid, either um, he dies childless, or if he has children, children die, and scary stuff. Good news is this doesn't apply to this bar, so we can't transgress it because we don't have a bet, uh, bet amigdash. Now, fine. And as she just points out, that it's only if you eat it past its time, but not if you slaughter it outside of its place. If you just by slaughtering it outside of the temple, you don't get karef for that. It's a sin, but it doesn't render the korban subject to karet. So that she says, anosh karet ala nishhat komo. You don't get karet on if it was slaughtered outside of its place. That's um, only on actual notav. Okay, now we get to the next place. Guy has a field. Okay, in Israel. And he's cutting the field. He's uh, cutting the uh, the wheat. Lo You're not allowed to cut the corners. You ever hear when I say that saying? Guys cutting corners? So maybe it comes from here. The Torah says you must leave the corners of the field, which is called pe'ah, and that is for the um, the poor people. Lo do not um, do not terminate the pea from the field, the sword, by cutting it. Now, what does that mean? Leket. That's referring to, let's say, when you're cutting. So you hold on to the stalks. So let's say, after you cut, some of them remained. Like you grab them and you cut. Let's say two remain. You have to leave it there. That's called the leket. Uh, those are stalks that fall at the time of the shearing. You can't go back and pick them up. That belongs to the uh, anim. Only if it's two stalks. If it's three stalks, you can pick it up. But two stalks, you leave for the anim. So the anim, by the way, they love that time of year of the harvest. Because once the farmer goes through the field, they, they know that they're going to end up with pe'ah, and there's going to be stuff flying around the field that the farmer must leave for them. And that's the way the ani. Uh, I mean, it's such a beautiful law that the, the farm is making a lot of money, but he leaves a little for the for the poor people as well. Rabbi. Yes. Is that what was left for Ruth from Boaz? Oh, that's a beauty. Exactly. Exactly. She 
poor lady at the time, when she came back to Israel with her mother-in-law, she was destitute. And that, that made her qualified for this entitlement, because you have to be poor to, to collect it. And uh, Naomi um, said, you know, go to the fields and collect. She didn't tell her where to go, but the divine providence uh, brought her to the field of Boaz, where she would eventually marry him. So, you know, turns out that uh, because Boaz gave his entitlements to the Anim, God rewarded him with a wife. And ultimately, that wife would bring David Melech and Mashiach. And yes, she actually would go to the fields and uh, she would collect the uh, gleanings that were left over. And one of the things that says about Ruth was that Boaz was impressed at, at the way that she uh, was very modest. She didn't bend over or, you know, do any, you know, positions that might be immodest for a lady. She you know, kneeled down and took them. So he saw that she's like royalty. She's very, she has very uh, you know, uh, uh, majestic, uh, 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 fine character. And that's uh, ultimately he married her. But yes, you, you are absolutely correct. Now, in the vineyard, you also have to leave grapes. So in the field of wheat, let's say, of grain, it's called leket, uh, or pe'ah. And in a vineyard, it's called olelot. Do not uh, cut all the grapes. So there's certain rules exactly what the grapes have to look like that the farmer must leave for the anim. Uh, when you're cutting the grapes off the vine, some of the little grapes fall on the floor. Those grapes you have to leave for the anim. And the pasuk says, Leave them to the ani and the ger, the convert uh, in your midst. I am God. Now, this is a question. Why does God have to introduce himself in this pasuk? We know that God is God. Why is his name mentioned by the entitlements of the poor people? And the Torah says uh, that if you don't give your entitlements, I'm coming after you, God says. Um, and there's going to be a... Uh, the reason why God comes after is because the poor people scream out to God crying. It's not enough that he made us poor, but now this, this guy doesn't even give us our entitlements. And now we're, So the Ani has claimed. The Ani cries out to God, and God hears the prayers of the, of the destitute. And therefore God says, be careful, I am God. If you're not going to give the Ani what they deserve, you're in trouble. Like right, like the widows and orphans, exactly. Now let's go one more. We know what that means. Don't steal money. Now, don't make a mistake. We heard this commandment once before, which is actually one of the Ten Commandments. But as she reminds us that in the Ten Commandments is not talking about stealing money. It's talking about kidnapping. Most people don't know that. When the, when the Ten Commandments says lo tignov, and most people say, don't steal, it's true. Don't steal people. You know, the smuggling, you know, they call it uh, you know, human trafficking. But this is the pasuk that teaches us where you're not allowed to steal money. Lo tignov. she points that out over here. And then 
it says velotechahashu. Now velotechahashu is you're not allowed to uh, deny. Let's say, what do you mean deny? Let's say I give you something to watch. And uh, I come back to pick it up. And you deny that you ever got it. You said, no, you never gave it to me. And then all of a sudden, uh, it shows up. And we realize you were lying. So you're you're mechahesh. You're you're denying. So the law is you have to pay back not only the principal, but you have to add 20%. That's a penalty shot. Now, look to Shekinu is don't lie. Straightforward. No, don't, don't, don't lie. Swear falsely, that's included. Ishba Amito. And uh, the rabbis teach us an amazing lesson over here. You know, there's a lesson. One sin leads to another sin. I, I once heard a, 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 I'll tell you what it means over here first. It says, if you stole, that's sin number one. What's going to end up happening? Once you, exactly, once you steal, what's going to end up happening? You're going to come to deny. No, I don't have it. And then what's going to end up happening? You're going to swear falsely. So it's a progression. You committed three sins, a three for one. You only signed up to steal, but the stealing led to denying, and the denying leads to lying in in, in a swear, and so on and so forth. One of the rabbis said that um, a, a person was, was a, a rasha, an uh, evil guy, and he came to the rabbi for a tikkun. He wanted to make a rectification. So the, the guy said, I know I'm a bad guy, and my rectification is going to be great, obviously. I have to do something great. But I don't know if I can handle to do everything. I know the Torah is very big. So the rabbi said, no, you don't have to do everything. Just do one item. One item and you'll be rectified. He said, one item I can do. He said, what is it? Don't lie. Now, he accepted upon himself that. But he noticed that once already you're not lying, so now what would happen? Uh, he would get up uh, late for Minyan. And uh, they would ask him, where were you? Now, normally he would say, oh, I prayed in a different shul. But now he can't lie anymore. Now he has to tell the truth. I woke up late. So that was the deterrent for him for waking up late because he knew he couldn't lie. And, and all these things, you know, but once the person knows that he has to be honest, so somebody says, where were you? Now he can't say that he was uh, playing hooky. He has to tell the truth. So therefore, uh, he doesn't want to do it. So that was the greatest deterrent against sin is if you accept upon yourself to always be truthful so it'll be a safeguard against doing anything wrong because if somebody asks you, you're going to have to tell them the truth and you're not going to want to tell them the truth because it's embarrassing and therefore it'll stop you from doing it in the first place. So it's one abera that saves you from, from many. Uh, last pasuk of the day, don't swear in my name uh, falsely. Um, now, even though it's one of the Ten Commandments, don't swear in my name falsely. Now, she says, in the Ten Commandments, it's only referring to swearing on God's specific name, Yud Kevatke. This person comes and says that even if you swear on any of the other names, it's also a problem. For example, uh, the Shem uh, Shakai, Shindal Yud, or Elohim, 
or uh, Adanut, all the other names as well, I'll learn from this. By swearing on God's name falsely, you desecrate Hashem's name. means do not hold wages. May we learn that when a person is has to pay his workers, you got to pay them. It's a crime to, you know, give the worker the runaround. The check is in the mail, famous last words. And, uh, you know, keep on sending the guy back and forth. And you have the money. You have the money and he wants the money. In that case over there, the Arizal, Allah Shalom, it says about him, he would not pray Minha until he paid all his uh, workers that he had to pay or all the people that he owed money. He felt that if a person owes money, his tefillot are not answered. And then it says, Velot do not steal. Uh, that means uh, if you have, let's say, a, a daily worker and he leaves at uh, sunset, let's say. So therefore, you have, you're able to pay him the whole night. You just have until the morning and then already you're in contempt. So that's the rule. You get one period. So if he works the whole day until sunset, so then you have to pay him at night, right? When he finishes. So you have the whole night to pay him. If you don't pay him by the following morning, you committed already this uh, this crime. And she says, um, let's say a guy's a night worker. It's the opposite. Let's say he's a night watchman. So if he finishes his job, you have the whole day to pay him. And then once sunset comes the following day, and you didn't pay him, then they transgress. So it all depends what period he's working. You have the following period to pay him. Clear on that? Okay, that's what I We'll stop on. Uh, we'll stop on this. We're learning from the flash of the Mahaya Sarabat Simha, and we are holding a Yutech at chapter nineteen, and we are up to Pasuk. We'll do Pasuk fourteen. So the Pasuk says here, which literally means do not curse a, uh, a deaf man. Now, the reason why they don't want you to curse a deaf man is because he can't hear you, so you're taking advantage of him by cursing him. So it doesn't mean only uh, a deaf man, it means anybody. But it just uh, speaks in, the, in uh, such, a, uh, such an example because that's somebody that, you know, a person would, uh, like I said, would take advantage of, because he can't hear you, but the Torah doesn't want you to curse uh, anyone. But if you're not allowed to put a stumbling block in front of a blind person. Uh, for example, literally it means a person who doesn't see something, so you cannot put a, obstacle in front of him and he'll trip over it. But that's a simple interpretation. The deeper interpretation is you cannot give somebody bad advice because you're putting a stumbling block on a blind person. He doesn't know information. So you give him wrong advice. Uh, for example, you tell him, sell your house and buy a donkey. And then uh, you end up buying the house from him. You, you, meaning you gave him bad advice because you wanted his house. So you told him, yeah, the real estate market's not good. I think you should sell your house. And the guy sells the house and you come and buy it. 
So therefore, you put a stumbling block in front of a blind person. That means you have to be careful when you're giving advice to people that you should make sure that uh, it's better to say you don't know than to give the wrong advice. And the Pasuk says, All these things, you have, it's based on that God knows what you're doing. Because you can come along and say, no, I, I thought I was giving him the right advice. I, I know I didn't intend. So the Pasuk reminds you, have fear of God. I know exactly what you were thinking. So although humans cannot read your mind, but God can read your mind. So therefore, even though you might say, you know, I intended well, I meant well. But God knows the thoughts. God recognizes the nature of the thoughts of the people. And therefore, you know, again, you can fool the people, but you can't fool God. So therefore, the Torah reminds you that God's going to catch up with the person. We're not allowed to do wrong when it comes to uh, justice. Uh, the judge uh, is not allowed to pervert the judgment. Uh, that's considered a wrong. God hates and is repulsed by judges that are corrupt, either because they're taking money or either because they're not competent. And the Torah gives an example. So you're not allowed to favor the destitute man. It's interesting. A lot of times the judge favors the rich man, but the Torah reminds us that he cannot favor the destitute man, which means he can come along and say, you know what? The poor guy is a poor guy. So let me just tell the rich guy to pay him and, uh, you know, we'll take the money and let him, uh, you know, instead of stealing, let the poor guy get some money in the, in the, in the court over here. Which means the judge has mercy on the poor guy. He said, you know what? What's a thousand dollars to the rich man anyway? So I'll just judge that the rich guy's got to pay, even though the judge knows it's, 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 it's perverted justice. But he's saying, you know what? The rich guy doesn't care. It's only a thousand bucks. and The poor guy will benefit. No. God tells the judges, your job is not to do mercy. Your job is to do justice. And the judge has to give the right ruling. Now, after, if you want to convince the rich guy to give him a donation, okay, that's another story. But you cannot, you know, right the wrongs of, uh, of society in the courtroom. The judge has to, you know, judge. Like blackmailing. Yeah. Sometimes the judge is, is motivated by mercy. And he say, I see it. I feel bad for the poor guy. So, you know what? I'll tell the rich guy to pay him. No. If, if the rich guy's innocent, he has to rule, you know, in, in favor of the rich man. Furthermore, lotedar benegadol. You're not allowed to honor a great man. Again, a person might come along and say, well, this guy's very rich, or he's the son of, uh, you know, noble ancestry. How can I embarrass him? How can I rule against him? How can I humiliate him? So the Torah comes along and says, do not favor the great man as well. And then the Torah says, from here we learn the famous rule of that we have to give our friends the benefit of the doubt. That if a person sees his friend doing something and he can interpret it in one of two ways, as long as we know that the person is not a rasha, a bad person, if he's a sadiq or even a mediocre type of guy, so the obligation of the Torah is to give him the benefit of the doubt. You know, maybe he doesn't know, or maybe this. And therefore, 
we learn a famous, a very, very. That's that's coming up. That's coming up. This is betzedik to shpot that we have a responsibility to uh, judge our uh, friends, uh, even when they're doing something questionable. You know, the famous example: the guy goes into uh, McDonald's, and you see him coming out of McDonald's. So you say to yourself, uh, "What is he doing? Either he ordered a cheeseburger, or maybe he went to the bathroom." Uh, but then you see him coming out, and you see him wiping his face from the ketchup. So now you say, well, what is he doing over there? So, okay, so maybe, uh, you know, the ketchup's kosher. Who knows what he did? Maybe he maybe, maybe had some ketchup. As long as the guy's not a rasha, you have to give him the benefit. Lote lech is one of the famous ones. You're not allowed to go about gossiping. Um, uh, the word rachil uh, literally means is a peddler because that's what the gossiper does. He peddles information. Uh, they go around and, you know, they just keep on, you know, what they hear in one house, they go and sell it in a different house. And they go repeat what they heard in one place and they bring it to a different place, just like a peddler peddles his wares, the, uh, the gossip monger peddles information. And therefore, the Torah comes along and says, that one is not allowed to go in a... Uh, uh, in, in, in such a way. Basically, he's like a spy. He goes to one place and gets the information, and then he goes to the other place and repeats it. Lo ta'amod al dam Which literally means you should not stand over the blood of your friend. Uh, this is coming to teach us that um, if God forbid a person sees that his friend is, uh, is dying, and you could save him, uh, for example, God forbid the guy's drowning in the river or an animal is, uh, you know, attacking him, or he's being, uh, you know, robbed by bandits, and you have a, an ability to save the person, you're not allowed to just say, well, it's not my business, you know, I'm not, uh, not going to get involved, I don't want to get my hands dirty. No, the Torah says when you see a friend in trouble, and you have the ability to save him, you have an obligation to get involved, and God says on this pasuk, uh, no, the next person, lotikom. Okay, we know that lotikom means you're not allowed to. I'm sorry, I skipped. Now the Torah tells us we have the law of rebuke. If you see your friend doing something wrong, we have an obligation to rebuke. Uh, this is one of the hardest mitzvot in the Torah because there's an art of rebuke. Most people, you know, they rebuke, they take it, they get, they, they get personal and they get angry and they. Uh, it's got to be done in a way where the rebuke will be effective, where the person will, will accept it. it. has to come from a good place. So the Torah says, you shall not bear a sin because of him. Which means, don't try to rebuke a person, and by rebuking him, you're going to end up making a sin. How are you going to do that? By embarrassing him. Where he causes his face to become, let's say, pale. So it's a mitzvah to rebuke and criticize. But imagine you criticize somebody in front of the whole shul. So well, I'm rebuking him. Yeah, but you could have done it in private. So you embarrassed him. So the Torah says, although you have a mitzvah to rebuke, one has to be extra careful that it's not going to cause the person to be, um, to be embarrassed. The next one is, Lotikom velotitor. Et bene amecha, ve'ahavta l'lecha kamocha ni 
So the first one is lotikom. You're not allowed to take revenge. It's a very, very uh, you know, natural tendency of people. They like to get even. So the Gemara gives the classic example that she brings it down. The Uven comes along and he tells Shimon, could you lend me your magal? Could you lend me your sickle? And Shimon says, no, I'm not lending it to you. Absolutely not. And then uh, the next day, Shimon comes and tells the Uven, could you lend me your your hatchet. And the Uven comes along and says, no, you didn't lend me your, uh, uh, so the sickle one I asked, and I'm not lending you uh, the hatchet. But that's, he's taking revenge. He's saying, the, the reason why I'm not lending it to you is because you didn't lend it to me. So, you're not allowed to do that. That's taking revenge, and the Torah forbids that. Maybe in the Shabbat class we'll explain exactly why you're not allowed to take revenge. I think uh, we came up once with about eight reasons, if I'm not mistaken, why one should not take revenge. If you come to the Shabbat morning class, maybe you'll hear. Lo titor. Now, lo titor means don't bear a grudge. Now, what's the, what's the case of bearing a grudge? So let's say the same story. The guy comes to Uven and says, uh, lend me a hatchet. And Shimon says, uh, "No, I'm not. Uh, I'm not lending it to you." So uh, the next day, uh, again, so it's all again. The Uvein comes along and says, "Lend me a hatchet," and Shimon, Shimon refuses. Shimon says, "No, I won't do it." Now Shimon comes to the Uvein the next day, and Shimon says to the Uvein, "Lend me a sickle." And he comes along and says, I'll lend it to you because I'm not like you. When I asked you to borrow something, you said, no, I'm not like you. So he's lending it to him, but he's bearing a grudge. You see the guy still, still angry, understand? And he didn't give it to him, you know, open, open-hearted. He, he reminded him that, ah, I'm not like you that uh, when I asked you for something yesterday, you said, no, uh, I'm better. I gave it to you. So it shows you he still has some, some anger, he still has some animosity. So even though he's not taking revenge, actually the guy's doing hesitant, he's actually lending it, but because he's connecting his lending to, you know, I'm not like you, so that shows he's still holding uh, something, and that's a forbidden, a forbidden from the Torah. And ultimately the Torah says, which is the famous rule in the Torah, Rabbi Akiva said regarding this law, it is a very, very great rule in the Torah. What it means to say is that a lot of mitzvot are really based on the haftarah, loving your friend like you love yourself. Uh, if a person would adopt that mitzvah, you wouldn't steal, you wouldn't commit adultery, uh, you wouldn't damage, you wouldn't uh, make noise. Uh, you wouldn't uh, encroach on your friend's property. There's a lot of laws that automatically would be kept. You wouldn't speak Lashonara. Just because you're fulfilling the Mazvab, it's, it's a very, very important rule that keeps a person, you know, in, uh, in check, not transgressing the sins between a man and his friend. So that's 
ואהבת לך כמוך. The next person comes along and says, את חוקותיי תשמורו. Person has to keep the statutes, and one of those is בהמתך, לא תרביע כלאיים. We're not allowed to cross-breed species. I know we don't have too many farmers in this uh, chat, but if you have a, an animal, for example, uh, a horse and a donkey, so you're not allowed to crossbreed them, uh, which means take, take the, a male and put it on a female animal and, and crossbreed, that's going to be uh, forbidden. Uh, furthermore, the next thing is you're not allowed to um, uh, sow your field with mixed seeds. It means you take, let's say, wheat and barley and you mix it in the, uh, in the cedar and you go along and, you know, plant like that. No, no, you're allowed to plant wheat separately and barley separately, but you can't mix the seeds. Or let's say you take uh, lentils and uh, uh, the bean that's called a uh, fool and uh, you mix them up together and you plant it. Now that's called kilayim, and that's forbidden. Included in this law is grafting, which anybody came to the Tehillim class today in deal, you would have heard that we talked about this uh, mitzvah. You're not allowed to, for example, graft. You can't take an apple and, and a trog and graft it together and make a, uh, you know, uh, instead of an etrog, I don't know, a tafuhog, some type of... Uh, Combo. So that's forbidden uh, to do according to the Torah as well. The logic why it's forbidden is because if Hashem wanted these fruits in the world, he would have created them. So Hashem created the world in the perfect way. So by now, you know, crossbreeding is as if you're creating a new item that wasn't part of the original uh, intention. So there's no beracha. The last if he did it already, can he eat it? We said you said that he could eat it. He did it already, right? So now the last cross item that's forbidden is Begit Kilayim Shatnez. We're not allowed to wear Shatnez. So Shatnez is a woolen linen blend. So that's why a person has to make sure to check his clothes for Shatnez. A lot of times it's Shatnez in the collar or in the shoulder pads. Uh, so a person has to make sure, even though it says 100% wool, on the dress, or 100% wool on the on the, uh, on the suit. Uh, the Zora Kadosh says that if a person is wearing shatnez, his prayers are not answered. So, especially, you better check the suit that you wear on Yom Kippur, because the person is praying for 25 hours, and if he's wearing a shatnez, his tefillot are scrambled. There's a uh, famous guy that checks shatnez in the shatnez center here in Brooklyn, and he told me once that when he went out on a date, with a girl, I don't know if he ended up marrying her. When she came downstairs, he recognized that that dress that she was wearing had shotness. And right away he said, no, I can't go out with her, she's wearing shotness. So he told her father that the dress that she's wearing is all shotness and that she had to go up and uh, she had to change. So that was, uh, that date started on the wrong foot. I don't know how it ended, but uh, that's what the guy told me he did. So that's, the law of Shatnez, um, that one is not allowed to wear against Semir Upishtim. Again, it's, it's woven uh, and uh, 
spun, rolled and twisted together into a, uh, a garment. Okay, so that's, uh, that's that. And these are hokim over here. We don't have really a reason to explain why we cannot wear a woolen linen blend or why we can't crossbreed animals, although I explained it a little, but ultimately it's a, uh, it's a hook. So it's one of those things that God says, and uh, we have to accept it. Okay, like I said, this parasha is very rich. Every pasuk has, you know, three or four mitzvot in it. So we're going to have a lot of, of the precepts of the Torah actually find itself in parashat uh, Kedushim. So God willing, we'll continue learning it in the coming days. In the meantime, we should have Rufuah Shirema for Hayasara Batsimha. And we are in chapter 19, and we are going to begin tonight, Pasuk 20, the Ish. Have a lady, have a man actually, that uh, goes with a uh, a woman. And what is the significance of this woman? The he shifha. Which means uh, she's called a shifha harufa. You know what I noticed? Mm-hmm. When I eat sugary things, can you mute yourself? Because it's not used the real sugar anymore. Even my my the old weird thing. Oh, I think they did it. Okay. So let's review over here this case. We're talking about a shifcha. That's nechadefet. So that she says the case is talking about that it's a Canaanite slave woman. That she's half a slave and half free. I guess it was owned by, let's say, two partners. And one of the partners freed her, and the other partner did not. And she's engaged to an Ebed Ivri. Now, an Ebed Ivri is a Hebrew servant who's permissible uh, to take a Canaanite uh, slave woman. So that's the case we're talking about again. She's half half, she's half free and half slave, and she's engaged with an Ebed Ivri with a Jewish Hebrew servant. And again, Hebrew servant is permissible to go with a Canaanite uh, slave woman. And the Pasuk says, She says over here that she wasn't yet redeemed yet, uh, meaning her, her slave side half of her is a slave, that side was not redeemed yet, uh, or she was not freed, let's say. So she's, she's a half, she's half-half. So what do we do over here? The Pasuk says, 
bikoret tihiye. Literally means there shall be an investigation. When they say bikoret tihiye, that she says, what is this investigation? He loka. She gets lashes, the shafa, velohu, but not the not the man. Yesh al bedin libakeret adavar. The bedin will investigate the matter. Shelo lehayeva mita. Again, normally a lady that's married that commits adultery gets a death penalty, but this lady over here is not going to get the death penalty. Kilochu pasa because she's not totally free. Because we said only half of her is free. The end kedushia kedushim gemurin, and therefore uh, the marriage uh, that she has uh, is not a complete marriage. Which means we said that she's married to a evid kenani. Now, normally in a regular case, if a lady was fully married and then she goes with somebody else, that's adultery and that's punishable by death penalty. But this lady over here, she's not considered fully married. Because again, part of her is a free woman, and the free side of her is not married to the to the Eved. So therefore, uh, the pasuk says, Fine. And at this point over here, the bedin will give the um, the man the man malkut. Now, in order to understand, I'm sorry, the lady malkut. So the this law over here is a uh, not a law that applies today, but let's let's read it over here. Uh, I'm reading the pirush. So you have a Canaanite slave woman. So a Canaanite slave woman. Why would you have that case over there? You want you need a maid. You need a servant. So you went to the uh, you know goyim at the time. They were Canaanim, and you bought a uh, slave. You bought a Canaanite slave woman. Now. The problem with the Canaanite slave woman is they're not allowed to enter the bond of marriage. They're not marriageable. So the only one that can marry her, not a regular Jew, is only a servant, an evidivri. Let's go slow. What's an evidivri? Evidivri is a Jewish slave. Okay. We, 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 again, we're far away from slaves because, you know, Abe Lincoln freed the slaves. But before Abe Lincoln came along, there were slaves even according to the Torah. So now you have a Situation where you have a shifha kenanit is permissible to marry an evid evri. That is going to be permissible. Now, such a Jewish servant um, can be assigned actually a kenanite slave woman by his master. That's and that's what they used to do. By the way, a master would have a Jewish slave, and he would take his non-Jewish shifha kenanit slave, and he would mate them with the uh, with the evid evri. That was considered okay. Now, over here, we're talking about a Akinaanit, uh, but she's half uh, slave, half free. Now, how could you have that case over there? What is she? Uh, she's, uh, she's a hybrid. How is she half? You know, half of her is free and half of her is a slave. So the case is talking about it was owned by two Jewish partners. And uh, one of them freed his part of her. So that part of her is free. And uh, once you have a freed Canaanite slave, uh, she has the status of a total Jew. Uh, this is a strange case, right? She, she originally was a, a Goya, but once she's free, 
She doesn't go free to become back a Goya. The Shabbat becomes free, it becomes full-fledged Jewish, it's like a conversion. And now, since in this case, only, only one of the masters freed her, so she's in a very unique position. She's on one part Kenani and one part Jewish. She's a free Jew. What if so, she has children? Oh, so the children are not affected. Uh, the children are going to remain slaves. So the children of the slave woman remain slaves. But now we're talking about her status now when she's in this limbo. So such oh. a woman cannot really have relations with anybody. She cannot have relations with it. She cannot have, she cannot have relations with a Canaanite slave because her free side is Jewish. The Jewish lady cannot go with a Canaanite. And um, the liberated side, meaning the free side of her, cannot have relations with a uh, um, uh, with, with, with a Canaanite slave either. So she's in uh, limbo with that. Nor may she have relations with a free Jew, because half of her is a servant. So what do we do in such a case? She's half, half. She cannot marry. Yeah. She cannot marry a Jewish person, a regular Jew, because half of her is a slave. A slave cannot marry a Jew. She cannot marry a a, a a a a servant, because half of her is free. So what's this case? She can enter only into relationship with a Jewish servant of a fellow Jew. So the only ones that she's allowed to marry is an Ebed Ivri, is a Jewish servant. Now, he can only marry, he can marry the free side of her, and he's permitted to have relations with the slave side of her. It's a very, very complicated law. So he can marry her, and he's marrying the free side of her, and that is going to be uh, 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 the situation. Now, the law says that if somebody would go with such a lady. So now we get back to the law. I'm reading the, the Pasuk again. The Ish, a man. Ki yishkab He goes with this lady. And what type of lady you see? Shifhan l'cherefet le'ish. She's this half-half Shifhan k'na'anit that was engaged with Kiddushin to a Ebed Ivri. So the law is now, technically, she's partially married to the Ebed Ivri. And normally when you go with the Eshet Ish, with a married lady, the punishment would be a death penalty. But in this case over here, uh, the Torah says that she does not get death penalty. She's going to get um, lashes, as the Torah says. Let's continue reading the Pasuk. Pasuk says... Lo yumitu, they do not have a death penalty. Kilo hupasa, so she does not have a death penalty on her. She en kedusheha kedushin, because her marriage is not a full marriage. Again, why isn't her marriage a full marriage? Because the ebed evri can only marry the side of her that's free, but the ebed evri cannot marry the side of her that is a slave. So therefore. Since it's not a full marriage, it's not considered full adultery, and therefore there's not going to be a death penalty, but she's going to get uh, the lashes, as we said. But so why is it adultery if she was just a slave? She didn't do anything before. Oh, oh so she would, he was a, with a she would, the adultery is if a man goes with her after she gets engaged oh. or goes to an evidently. This half half. 
she accepted Kiddushin from an Eber Devri, which is okay. So oh, now she's right. married to the Eber Devri. So if she goes with another man now... She's not. Cheating. She's committing herself to the Eber Devri. Why is she going with right. another man? Because she's cheating. Because that, that's, the, that's the case. That's, that's what adultery is. Adultery is a sin. Because people... She's doing something that's wrong. She's not, she's not one of the Sadiqim over here, this lady. Oh, I thought she was committing herself to the Eber Devri, and that's it. She's a slave on the other side. Not happening? Okay. You know, that happens Sorry. until adultery. That happens until adultery. Once adultery sets in, there goes all the fidelity in the law. Okay. Anyway, that's okay. She she, she was loyal to the evidently. Okay, there was no avon there. But then a man went with her. And once the man went with her, so normally if it was a regular case of adultery, as I said, it would be a death. Since the marriage of the is only quasi, because he can only really be married to part of her, the first side. So therefore... The Torah says that instead of death penalty, there is lashes. So again, he can marry the free side of her, and he's permitted to have relations with the slave side of her. That's the evid. Uh, 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 In any event, the Torah comes along and says that et Hashem el petah el moed. The uh, the fellow that did it, the man has something a korban, as kapara. And God will forgive him. Now the Pasuk comes along and tells us, When you will enter Eris Israel, and from here we learn that it's a mitzvah to go to Eris Israel, and you will plant trees. So we see over here it's a mitzvah to plant trees in Eris Israel. However, that we must treat the fruit of these trees for the first three years, they're considered Kodesh, and therefore we're not allowed to benefit from them, and we're not allowed to eat them. They're considered blocked off. Orla means they're closed. We're not allowed to derive any benefit. This is the mitzvah that's called Orla. And a fruit tree in Eretz Israel, uh, when it starts to produce fruit the first three years, it's off limits. Now, uh, in the fourth year, so the fruit now becomes holy, uh, like, uh, you know, sanctified uh, fruit over there. And uh, it is not eaten outside of Jerusalem. You must take it and eat it in Jerusalem, the fruit. And then in the fifth year, the fruit becomes edible. So again, you have three, four, five. Three, off limits, can't do nothing. Just let it let it stay there. Fourth year, you take the fruits to Jerusalem and eat them. Fifth year, that's it. You can eat the fruits. So therefore, when you buy fruits in Israel, you have to have thought that it has a proper kosher supervision. You never thought you needed kosher apples before because you thought all apples are kosher. But if they're not, if they don't have a hechshed, it's possible that the farmer is selling you apples that grew within the first three years. And then that food is like eating not kosher. So therefore, again, when you go to Israel and you're eating the fruits, you have to ask them, uh, is this uh, fruit, you know... Uh, From the Orla? Uh, exactly. Is this fruit over here uh, checked that there's no Orla problems over here? Now, you don't have a problem you're buying from the Arabs only applies to Jewish-owned fields but there are a lot of Jewish farmers in Israel and some of them are not religious. 
So therefore, you know, when you go to the hotels, uh, you can say, oh, I'm just going to have the fruit. Well, you have to really ask who's giving the hashkaha on these fruits. How do we know that there's no orla? Or even if it's not orla, the fourth year is also forbidden. Well, I guess if you're in Jerusalem, you're okay. But if you're in Tel Aviv, you're not allowed to eat uh, uh, this item as well. And even the fourth year item, you cannot eat if you're not pure. So it's a, it's, it's wow. really, really an issue that you know, people think that you only have to get kashrut for meat and uh, for you know major items. But again, if you're in Israel, that's why if you look on um, different uh, fruits when you buy on the packaging, it says en uh, hashash orla. There's no suspicion of orla. They're really dealing with the uh, issue of uh, the salakhan. Torah promises that if you keep this law, uh, God will increase your crops. That's the uh, reward. That, but by keeping the law, there'll be um, there'll be an extra extra surplus. You know, a person might uh, God God says, you know, a person might say to himself, I, I planted a tree and I have no benefit for four years. So that's really a loss. I'm incurring a loss. So the God says, no, you didn't waste your time. Don't worry, I'm going to increase your yield, and whatever you sacrifice the first four years, you'll get it. You'll get it back. That says, "Ani Hashem, I am God that makes this promise to you, and I'm trustworthy to keep my 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 word." Lo tochlu al adam. Yes. On um, eating it or both. What is he saying? Is the suit of growing it? Is it the person, the farmer, is the one who's oh, getting the avon, or no, the, the eater? The eater. There's no. There's no sin in planting trees. It's a mitzvah to plant a tree. The problem is the first three years, nobody can benefit from those fruits. Nobody. The first three oh, years. So on both. The, uh, off limits, and even in the fourth year, the, the fruits are holy. But there's no. There's no sin to plant a tree. It's just that you have to plant it according to the halakha. Now, the last halakha is which literally means do not eat the blood. Now, there's many, many different interpretations of this uh, halakha. It simply means don't eat blood. But some say that um, you're not allowed to eat from a sacrifice until the blood of it was sprinkled. Uh, we also learn over here that we're not allowed to eat from a regular animal that was slaughtered uh, before it dies. That means it, you have to wait till the animal actually is dead, that the blood comes out, and then you're allowed to eat the animal. But if the animal is still alive, even though you slaughtered it, it's still like, uh, you know, uh, has some life in it. So then it, it is... Uh, we call that in halakha mefarkeset. And it's having like spasms after you slaughtered it. So uh, it's forbidden. You have to wait until the blood is drained and then they can start eating uh, from the animal. They also learn halakha from here that you're not allowed to eat before you pray. Do not eat before you pray for your blood, for your life. That's why we have a halakha that when you get up in the morning, you have to pray shahari first and then uh, you can eat. Finally, lotenahashu. You're not allowed to uh, involve yourself in um, different type of 
superstitions, we would call them. You know, for example, uh, the person gets superstitious. He says, oh, well, my bread fell out of my mouth on the floor. That means I'm going to have a bad luck day. Or he was walking and a black cat passed him. He says, oh, you know, or lot uh, onenu. That's the last halakha that talks about where you are uh, suspicious uh, about certain days. You know, oh, it's a bad luck day, Friday the 13th. You know, or they say, oh, this day's a lucky day. Or this day's an unlucky day. This is a good day to start a, a job. And uh, this is a bad day. Uh, therefore, or to go on a journey. Really, one should not uh, put any uh, credence uh, to when it comes to that. What about the, the rabbi, the people who say chamsa, chamsa, they say, oh, you know, they start, he gave me the chams, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, well, that, 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 that's Ayn Arad. There's, uh, there's uh, some uh, sources. There's some sources that talk about that. But this is more, like I said, a, a guy doesn't walk under a ladder because he thinks it's yeah, bad luck. Yeah. Or a black cat or Friday the 13th. And you start worrying about all these different uh, items. And it's not... Um, you know, not Jewish things, obviously. These are you know practices of the goyim. Um, you know, a certain day is better to do a job than another day. That's not the uh, that's that that's 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 going to be. Well, we uh, we have a thing where you open up the uh, the business on Tuesday or Thursday. That's the minhag or something. Or? No, no, but that, that's a uh, sefer Torah or something. Right. right. We have we have a source for that because when God created the world, He said on Tuesday Kitov twice. But it's without a ready source, but we're just talking about like I said, Friday the 13th, like that, or uh, or different type of practices that maybe the Guim uh, uh, have. So we're not allowed to have that uh, in our uh, in our religion. Okay, that's the uh, laws for tonight. Uh, if anybody wants to uh, see the mitzvot of this week's perasha. We did start to uh, explain them, but I don't think we're up to it yet. Um, we started explaining every day another mitzvah in the Torah, and we sent out an email. You could uh, go to Aitra and uh, sign up, and you'll get an email every day for another mitzvah. It's important because these are the 613, and you see we're struggling to try to understand each one of them. Each one is a story in itself. So these are little paragraphs that explain the mitzvah concisely, what it is, who it applies to. So again, if you want to subscribe to it, great thing, Rabbi. I thought that Thank you, Rabbi, for all your time, especially this late. Thank you. Let the, rabbi, let the rabbi speak in the beginning of the class as well. That's my suggestion. So okay. now we, we have uh, a shiur as we do every night at this time, 10 o'clock. We're learning Parashat Kedushim. It is for the And we are up to every Pasuk is a mitzvah in this Parashat practically. So we're up to chapter 19 and we're up to Pasuk 27. So here's the law that says that you're not allowed to uh, cut your peot off. So you have to leave the, the side ones. That's what we learned. This from over here. Uh, the peot, right? That's the uh, the sideburns, like we like we said. et peat zekanecha, and you're not allowed to uh, destroy uh, the beard. Now, what does it mean, destroy the beard? 
it means that you're not allowed to use a razor. When there's different, there's different points. It's also, if you have somebody that uses a razor on their face, so then they're transgressing possibly five sins every day because there's five points on the beard. Uh, actually, I have a picture of the different points. Uh, let's see if we can have the picture over here. Oh, there's a machloket over here. Exactly where, but basically the picture's over. You see the guy's beard over here. You see two guys with beards. So there's a different machlok at how high it goes on the cheekbone. One of the rabbis is a little lower, and one of the rabbis in the bottom says a little higher. Point is, not none of this area are you allowed to use a razor. Not over here, over here, and on the on the sideburns. So the kids have to be very careful when they go for haircuts. Sometimes the barber takes the razor out and cuts the peot or cuts them too short. So that's what we learned this from over here. The um, Torah then says, "Veseret la nefesh lo titenu bepsarchem." Seret la nefesh is you're not allowed to put a scratch, you know, over on, on your body. The old custom of the green was that when somebody would die, they scratch their flesh. I mean, make a, if you ever saw sometimes the, you know, the, the people from different countries when they they come to the funerals they. Like this, they scratch their faces, and so that's not allowed to do. That's called a seret la nefesh, and the Torah tells us as well, ketovet ka'aka lo titenu bachem. Ketovet ka'aka is a tattoo. So clearly, the Torah forbids to engrave uh, a permanent uh, marker. Uh, they use a needle and they put it in there, and it stays black and dark permanently. Today crazy world that we live in, uh, tattoos have become very, very, very popular. Uh, everybody has a tattoo. And unfortunately, even the, you know, the Jewish people think that it's some sort of, uh, you know, status to have a tattoo. But the Torah forbids it in the highest order. And uh, even questions that come up, sometimes they have this uh, permanent makeup that they put up and things like that. So one really has to ask a rabbi a question uh, regarding putting anything permanent uh, on their body. There's no, there's no reason. Now, the Torah doesn't tell us the reason for this, why you can't put a tattoo on the body. But the, the, the main ideology behind it is that it's not our bodies. It doesn't belong to us. So therefore, you know, if somebody comes along and... Uh, you know, lends you something, lends you a uh, a book. And, uh, you know, you cross out words and you paint it and you color it and you return it. So what are you doing? You have no right to, to, make, to do anything to the book. You have to return it to the, to, the, to the owner as you got it. Same thing with the body. God gave us the body as it is. If he wanted us to have, a, you know, an anchor on our uh, shoulders, then you would, would have been born with it maybe. He doesn't want you to abuse the body in any any permanent way. Obviously, there's you no know, reason why Hashem doesn't want it, and uh, it's uh, it's it's becoming unfortunately more more popular. But again, something that is clearly asur. Next pasuk: Al tehalel et betecha lehaznota. Okay. Now over here, it's talking about over here that uh, a person is not allowed 
to, uh, forgive me, but you're not allowed to profane your daughter. How would, how would one profane their daughter? Uh, to send her out uh, as a zona. What is this talking about? Uh, you know, he wants to make some money. So he sends his daughter out to uh, commit prostitution, forgive me, and uh, not through marriage. So the Torah comes along and says, one is not allowed to, uh, to do that, to send his daughter out in, a, in such a way. And as a result, the land uh, should not become uh, defamed. And the Torah teaches us an amazing thing that the Torah tells us that if a person sends his daughter out in prostitution, the earth will prostitute its fruits which means uh, it will uh, produce fruits in a different land and not in the land of Israel. So it'll cause the land to lose its blessing. So the behavior of the people directly affects the, uh, the land itself. There's a direct correlation between the produce and the blessing uh, based on the uh, behavior of the people that are living on the land itself. Et shabetotai <clears throat> the Torah now teaches us again, you must keep the Shabbatot, and you must also fear our sanctuary, which is the synagogue. So the Dashi tells us that a person cannot walk into the synagogue with his stick, you know, his walking stick. In the olden days, they would not walk into the temple with their shoes on or his money belt. In the olden days, they would not wear shoes and socks, so before, before a person went into the temple, <clears throat> he would have to clean his feet from the dust. And therefore, the Torah is coming and telling us that there's a connection between Shabbat and the Beit HaMikdash. Why does the Torah put these two items in the same pasuk? To come and tell you that as important the Beit HaMikdash is, you can't build it on Shabbat. That's uh, that the Beit HaMikdash cannot be constructed on the Shabbat itself. Next Ovot. Now, Ovot is different types of witchcraft. I know and, it. Yep. And you're not allowed to go into witchcraft and black magic and all this type of stuff. One type of witchcraft is called Ov. And Ov is Ahamidabed Meshachiyot. There's crazy people out there, but what they do over here is they're able to say certain names and then a voice comes out of their armpit. Yeah, it's a little disgusting, but that's what happens. Uh, I guess they raise the souls of the dead somehow, and then all of a sudden the voice of the dead guy comes out of their armpit and they're able to, you know, do this type of uh, procedure, which is, you know, wow. and they want to ask the dead people questions and things like that like a seance, all that stuff, Harry Potter, all that uh, stuff that we don't believe in. It's a power. So we don't believe in it. It's a power. We're not allowed to use it. And then you have Yideoni. What is Yideoni? Yideoni is another type of black magic. They take the bone of an animal uh, that's called Yadua, the Tukhpiv. They take the bone and they put it in their mouth and all of a sudden voices come out of the bone. So that's another type of black magic. And again, they did it in order to 
find out what's going on, what's going to happen in the world, the future. So there's definitely, it's, we, we believe that there's definitely a power. We're just not allowed to use the power. And uh, uh, the Torah tells us, uh, do not get involved in it, because if you do, it makes the person uh, impure. And God says, I will uh, abhor you. Abhor you, meaning I will, I will hate you for this. Why are you trading in a true God for this false, for these false powers or for these negative powers? It's coming from the from the dark side, from the negative side. And therefore, there's no reason to be to be drawn after it. And now we get to a practical law: You must stand up for your elders. And uh, an elder uh, is, according to the Torah law, 70 years old. Once a person reaches 70, he's considered an elder. And according to the Kabbalah, once a person actually reaches 60, he's considered an elder. And when he walks by, the Torah says you have to stand up for him. Uh, The Torah is teaching you to respect uh, your elders. And... What does a zaken mean? One is a seba, and then you have a zaken. So that she says, a zaken is a tamid hakam. Zaken is an acronym. Zekana chokhmah. He has acquired wisdom. And the Torah is telling us that even if a tamid hakam is young, he's 18 years old, when he walks by, you have to stand up for him as well. So you have to stand up for an elder, and you have to stand up for a tamid hakam. And you have to show the uh, elder and the scholar respect. So that she says, one of the things is, you shouldn't sit in his place. You shouldn't speak in his place. You shouldn't contradict his words. Um, you cannot close your eyes and make believe you didn't see him. You know, because so you, you don't want to stand up. So you put your eyes in the Sidur and make believe you don't see him walking in. You're not allowed to do that either. God says, I know exactly uh, your intention. That's what the end of the Pasuk says. You have to have fear of God because ultimately God knows you know, that you were trying to bypass the Nitzvah you really saw him, but you made believe you didn't. And therefore, the Torah tells us that this, uh, this, uh, this, this law, very, 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 very important. Actually, the... Um, there's another way of learning this pasuk. takum doesn't only mean stand up in front of your oldest elders, but it means mepeneseva before you become old. Takum rise up. That means when you're still young and you have your energy and you have your strength, rise up and accomplish. Because before you know it, the old age sets in, and then you're not as mobile as you're able to be, and you're not able to move around, and then you slow down. And you wish that you were able to do more when you were young. So the Pasuk says, before you become seba, before you become old, takum. Takum means rise up and, uh, and do something. Last Pasuk, if you'll have the uh, convert that will come and live in your uh, land, so we're not allowed to harass him. Now the harassment we're talking about over here is verbal harassment. You're not allowed. To, you're not allowed to come up. You're not allowed to harass anybody. But 
a convert is uh, you know he's an easy target, and they come along and they tell him, uh, now all of a sudden you're becoming Jewish. Yesterday you were doing Abu Dazara. Now all of a sudden you want to come and study Torah. So you're really not allowed to remind the convert of his of his past life. That's called verbal harassment, and that's uh, asur. And the Torah reminds us that kigerim uh, Baruch says. Uh, you must treat him like the regular citizen amongst you. Uh, you have to love the convert like you love yourself. Because you were, you, you were strangers as well. We have a rule that says, uh, if you were there before and you had the same deficiency, so you shouldn't taunt your friend with a flaw that you had. Uh, so in this case over here, they say, So you, you knew what it means to be a stranger. You were strangers in Egypt for 200 years. We were the underdog. And now all of a sudden that you're a big shot, you're living in the land of Israel, and a convert comes in and he's the underdog. So now you're going to take advantage of him. So the Torah says, remember you were in that position and therefore do not, abuse somebody uh, that you have, you know, you have something in common with it. Just because now you're on the other side of the wheel now, now you're on top, you know, don't, uh, don't, 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 uh, don't abuse him. I saw another explanation once that what does it mean that don't abuse the Ged because you were Gerim in Mitzrayim. It means uh, uh, nature is that let's say you have a person that went through a hard time and then he got out of it. So a lot of times that person will have less mercy on people that are going through hard times. Why? Because they say, nobody helped me when I was going through it. That's what it is. You got to go through it and you have to, you know, uh, you have to suffer. And uh, I went through it. I'm, I, I made it. So therefore you hold everybody to a higher standard and sometimes you become less compassionate. Uh, yeah, nobody helped me. Nobody, nobody was concerned about me. Therefore, when, when, when the foreigner comes, sometimes the foreigner who was in that position, you know, resents uh, the person in that, in that position. So the Torah says, you were Gerim in Mitzrayim, so you might have the attitude and say, yeah, and we survived and we left and we made a life ourselves. Therefore, you might not want to have compassion on the Gerim. The Torah says, no. Nonetheless, you have to uh, be compassionate when it comes to the uh, Gerim. Uh, the Torah says, Lo ta'asu avin We're not allowed to uh, do injustice when it comes to the when it comes to the law. Uh, this is referring to uh, measurements. So when a person has uh, you know measures to be sold, uh, weights and things like that, every shopkeeper is a judge because he's judging the the weights, the scales. And therefore, the Torah comes along and says you have to be very careful that your scales are you know, constantly calibrated. And your weights are uh, balanced. In the olden days, that's the way they would measure things. They put a weight on the scale. Today, it's electronic, but you could you could fool around with that also and tilt the scale. So the uh, olden days, the rabbis would go to the different stores and they would actually check the scales. There's a famous story told of a, uh, uh, a farmer, and every day uh, he had, he had a, he had a uh, uh, a cow, and he would sell milk. And uh, or he actually would sell butter. 
and he would sell the baker a pound of butter a day. And he would deliver the pound of butter and the baker would deliver a a pound of bread. And they were doing this for years. He gets a pound of butter, he gets a pound of bread. They would barter. And one day the baker said, you know, this butter doesn't look like it weighs a pound. And he went and he put it on the scale. And sure enough, it was less than a pound. <clears throat> and he says, the guy's a crook for all these years. He's been shortchanging me, uh, selling me uh, less than less than I bought. So he took him to the rabbi, to Bedin. And uh, the rabbi says, what's your case? He says, listen, I measured the, uh, the, the I weighed the butter and it's less than a pound. And uh, he owes me all this money. So the rabbi tells the baker, or the rabbi tells the, uh, the farmer, what do you have to say for yourself? <clears throat> he says, listen, I'm a simple guy. I have a scale, but I don't have any weights. So I really don't know how to measure a pound. But I know every day the baker would sell me a pound of bread. So I used his bread in order to weigh the pound of butter. Uh, so when it comes out, who was the real crook over here? It was the baker that was actually selling uh, or shortchanging the farmer. The farmer was using the pound of bread that he bought as the weight. And since that was off, so the butter became off as well. So he thought he's going to get uh, the farmer in trouble, but actually he indicted himself. And the Torah is very, very strict when it comes to um, you know the measures and the, the weights, whether it's a dry measure, as she says, that's called uh, mishkal. And we have a misura. Misura is a, a, a liquid measure. Abne tzedek, efat tzedek, hin tzedek. Torah teaches us hin tzedek uh, is also, uh, in Hebrew, the word hin is yes. So not only your measurements should be justice, but your yes should be justice. That means if you tell a person yes, so you have to keep your word. And that's perversion of justice. If you tell somebody yes, then you go back on your word. So hin tzedek, your yes should be uh, uh, correct. And God reminds us, uh, I'm the one that took you out of Egypt. And God says, when I took you out of Egypt, I was able to discern between the uh, firstborn Egyptians and the firstborn of the Jewish people. And I knew who was a firstborn and who was not. And therefore, I know also who's cheating in business as well. And I know who is um, uh, storing his weights in salt. Now, what does that mean, storing his weights in salt? Uh, the Gemara says that when you take your weights and you store it in salt, some of the salt would get absorbed in the weight. So now it would become heavier. You wouldn't see it. Uh, the salt went inside the weight. So God says, if I'm the God that knew the difference between who's a firstborn and who's not a firstborn, but I can discern between the seed of a firstborn and the seed that's not a firstborn. So I'm the God that's going to discern between uh, those that uh, cheat and do things in, in, in private that nobody sees, like, like stacking their weights. And uh, God says to cheat the people, and the people don't know, but God says, I know, and therefore they're going to receive their, uh, their punishment. Okay, we got to uh, have to parasha. Take this opportunity to wish our members a uh, Shabbat Shalom and Be'ezat Hashem. We should continue having our tefillot for Hayas Rabbat Simcha that she should have for Shemar for Tanefish for Taguf, and I tell all our members.
Another beautiful week. Hazaka Baruch. Amen.